Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. Welcome to another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. And my name is David Parker. David, I have a question for you. How do you? Would you consider yourself a replican or a replicant? I think of myself more as a replican, personally. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah. What uh, persuades you that you are more of the replican? I just feel like way. I like doing things in life. Oh. Yeah. But don't replicants do things, too? Well, they can't. <laughs> well, whence all of the action then? <laughs> I, I don't, I don't know. Or hence all the uh, no, I don't know. Maybe it's a, a, a more of a existential thing whether they can or can't. Okay, do maybe more to the point of this movie. How would you know if you're a replicant or a replicant? <laughs> I guess someone would have to tell you. Yeah. <laughs> ah, good answer. <laughs> really good answer. Yes, hello, everybody. Today we are going to be doing the 1982 Ridley Scott-directed film Blade Runner, which is based on the 1968 novel, I guess. I never checked if it was a novel or a short story. I think it's a novel, I think it's though, a novel. By Philip K. Dick called Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Which I think is a way funnier title. Yeah, than Blade Runner. Than Blade Runner. But Blade Runner is a cooler title. Right? True. Although, did you... I didn't see the connection between being called a Blade Runner and someone who hunts down replicants. Maybe like, Others oh, just a cool just name. a cool name. Right? Yeah. Like, it doesn't seem to... I think I did I read mean, on the Wikipedia... Marine, art. right? That's just a word. I guess marine? it has to do with mar- maritime right. stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, like... I think I looked, because I read the Wikipedia page on this movie after I watched it, and um, there was something in there about how it was con- Blade Runners were connected to some kind of other movie that oh. somebody involved in the production knew and thought that would be a cool name, maybe. So There you go. Yeah. So um, Ridley Scott directed, starring Harrison Ford as Rick Deckard, and then a bunch of other people who I didn't know their name, and then Rutger Hauer plays Roy Batty, the main replicant what a strange movie hey like, very odd yeah like uh not a very very evenly flowing plot line the action feels weird i think that's why people like it so much it's very unique mm. like you don't encounter that i don't know that mixture of kind of curiosity and slight disgust and mm-hmm. like kind of uncanny valley i think frankly the this is a great dive into the uncanny valley oh yeah like the whole movie uh, that's feels a good like point. the uncanny valley uh, that's a good lead-in too because yeah you're right every 
kind of little bit of this movie feels about like five five to ten percent off yes hey everything the whole thing um the way the characters behave is just a little bit weird the way that the the aesthetic is just a little off (laughs) from what you're used to even how people get killed is just a little bit weird like when she (laughs) gets shot she like is there's a lot of convulsion on the floor or (laughs) yeah 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 or when the you know kind of the the godfather of the replicants gets his eyes popped out to mm-hmm. kill him like it's it's just a very odd and all of that mixed with such a unique and like almost soul penetrating score yes that just feels so 80s and so outer space at the same time you know what it reminded me a little bit of not fully but a little bit of is drive oh yeah okay yeah. oh yeah 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 that i see a that great yeah score but it kind of like 80s. um like a lot of songs have this have a melody that you can kind of pick out from the rest of the song yes right like the you can pick out the melody from the rhythm and even harmonizing of other parts and other instruments but in blade runner it feels like the song like it's more sounds than music yeah that are just penetrating a lot of the scenes right and yet i feel like the the music slash score of this film is part of why it's so iconic yeah, you know, I'd you agree. definitely feel like the same way that the um, the buildings <laughs> look weird. Yeah, like the 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 way the buildings look and the way the sound is and the kind of like weird nonchalant nature of a lot of the characters is just you're right. It's uncanny. It's it such a yeah. good way to put it. It's an uncanny film, which makes sense considering the uncanny valley comes from robotics. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I wonder how intentional that was. It must have been a little bit, hey? I would think so. Right? I would hope so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. This is. I, I'm going to assume, actually, that a lot of people have probably seen this movie. Because it's... Um, uh, apparently, it wasn't... It wasn't, like... Uh, it totally... lost money, I think. Because mm-hmm. it, was, it was pretty promoted and... Well, again, if you think about it, even in a meta sense, it's uncanny to have a movie this weird, but starring Harrison Ford. Yeah, <laughs> right. Like one yeah. of the world's this most. This is probably famous. one of his weirdest movies too. But but in an era like this movie come, coming out in 1982 would have been right between in the year between Raiders of the Lost Ark and Return of the Jedi. Right. So two of the most. This is like he is blockbuster. At his peak, <laughs> yeah. And then he goes and does this. And the most famous, arguably the most famous actor in the world, doing Blade Runner. Yeah. 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 I guess ju- we sh- we'll give it a little plot rundown, but before we do, I just want to give another big shout out to all of our listeners. We really appreciate all of your support and your uh, interest in our podcast. Uh, you can subscribe to us on any of the major podcasting platforms, and um, if you subscribe, you get notified anytime a new episode comes out. And additionally, if you feel so inclined to leave a rating or a review, apparently reviews are really good to help the podcast become more known. So if you get any value out of this podcast, we would really appreciate that. And you can find us on Facebook. We have a Facebook page. And so we also post new episodes there. And it's a way you can contact us if you want to. You can also contact us at reallytruefiction at gmail.com. If you listened to our Doctor Strange Love episode, you'll realize why we don't have a Twitter account. Yes, <laughs> and it's basically true. my fumbling around understanding. <laughs> I'm the sure basic... eventually we will get one, but we yeah, don't yeah, have yeah. one right now. And additionally, this is really exciting, but I want to give a big shout out to our growing listenership in the country of India. Yes, apparently yes. there are several. Uh, I don't know if I'd call them fans exactly because I haven't talked to any of them, but. Uh, 
we have seen a significant uptick in our downloads from what is it the world's largest democracy yes <laughs> the subcontinent yeah the subcontinent uh, yes. and is it not and this this could be like one of those things that um you hear and so you just forward without double checking but is it not the world's largest english-speaking country population wise population wise yes. yes right now i don't know i mean maybe an, uh, an uh, indian listener can help it, us with this is because we don't do research remember really <laughs> true fiction a little diligence thoughtful mediocrity <laughs> <laughs> is english an official language of india yes oh okay yes. and what are the other official languages i believe it is the official language but isn't there more than one uh, Hindi, that might be what Hindi's we... definitely one, I think. Yeah. But like, they have a lot of languages. In of India. course, yeah, of course. There's a, a lot of people that living there, so mm-hmm. and very, very diverse, very country, exactly. Yeah, Incredibly which is cool. Diverse. So it's really fun because on the um, audio subscription that we use to host this podcast, it does a lot of stat breakdowns for us, and so I'm kind of like learning the different names of the provinces of india because it shows you which province the download comes from even yes yes which i love because you as you know from when i was a kid i'm a big geography nerd true luke for everyone's knowledge memorized every flag of every country in the world i believe well i had a notebook where i would write down in alphabetical order because we had a map on our wall that was a map of the world with all of the flags in alphabetical order so i like copied that right and so all the flags but then also the country name, the capital city, and the estimated population based on whatever previous census they'd done kind of thing. So yeah, he he had all that memorized. Yeah, I don't know. I just loved geography. And so it's been a passion ever since. And so that's actually one of the reasons it's so cool to see like how far... The internet is amazing. It right? is. Like, it is. How it doesn't... Like it should feel way more surreal than it does that people around the world can hear our voices. And are hearing right? our voices, yeah. Like, if you think about... Um, We're in every continent except for Antarctica now. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, we, uh, we're we on Team Polar Bear. Yeah. Sorry, penguins. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Save true. the polar bears! <laughs> Fuck the penguins! Well, <laughs> no. <laughs> well, to be honest, I'm not a huge Pittsburgh fan. <laughs> Even though Crosby's a Canadian. So for all of our Indian listeners, that is a hockey joke. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I don't know if how big... Oh, sorry, I actually have to specify ice hockey. Right. Because probably field hockey is a... It's big there. Is, is big yeah. there, yes. So we, we uh, in the Great White North, we play on the <laughs> ice. So anyway, I just think that's so cool. And as you can tell. Yes. Do you want to do a plot rundown? All right. So essentially, we are introduced to uh, Decker, who is uh, Harrison. Is it, it's a D on the end. Deckard. Deckard, yeah. you're right. Yeah, yeah, Deckard. Yeah. So we're introduced to Deckard. The nerds uh, will pillory you yeah, if I don't. true. <laughs> Deckard is a kind of our, our main character. He's He is the man who runs through the entire movie. And we're introduced to him. He's he's got this kind of dejected view of the world, you know, kind of the, um, it's it's almost a trope now, but I don't think it was a trope back then. Like a world weary realist, world weary realist police slash detective mm-hmm. person slash uh, kind of retired. So yeah, it's retired but forced back into service because we're informed that there are four replicants on the loose and that they escaped one of the colonies uh, off-world and ended up on-world. So in this futuristic world that we're living in, uh, replicants are human-android-like creatures who who are biological. So they're, they're made uh, with, you know, human biology. 
but they are um, programmed essentially and therefore not seen as human and uh, categorized differently and treated like slave labor. So there's a, you know, there's obviously the fun sci-fi existential questions of, you know, what is, what is the value of a, or, you know, what, what happens when something becomes indistinguishable from a human consciousness. So these replicants have landed on earth and they've killed a bunch of people in a colony. And so Essentially, the global authorities are after them, and our Harrison Ford character is seemingly one of the few people who's able to find them. He's an expert in this, and we follow him as he essentially tracks them down and kills them one by one until the end in which he's saved by one. Mm. Uh, and the plot is... All, we are also introduced to Rachel who is also a replicant, but unaware that she's a replicant until it's revealed to her by Deckard. <laughs> and her plot line is essentially the existential crisis of realizing that your memories aren't your own mm. and that, you know, what are you if you're not human? Mm -hmm. um, so really this is, I'd say, an intellectual exercise in a you know, hypothetical because yeah. we have we haven't reached this point yet, although we can see this point on the horizon. So I think the you know it's it's an incredibly interesting and more interesting now than it was when it came out. I would say mm -hmm. because um, we have people like Elon Musk and Tim Urban and and all and many many others deeply discussing this and kind of pinging it back and forth off each other. What is it going to mean for us as humans when we create? Uh, consciousness mm -hmm. so i think that'll be an interesting thing to discuss but i mean the plot is not in incredibly complex no there aren't really any twists and turns i wouldn't say you know why i think i mean i wouldn't say there's a lot of things about this movie that are not overly stimulating it is kind of slow and methodical and not and, and uncanny but I was thinking about it for the last couple of days because I've seen it probably about four times now and then again. And we watched the uh, final cut. So yes, apparently the this theater, movie... theatrical version. No. No, no, like the... Right, yeah, the final I, I, Apparently this is the, the cut that Ridley Scott had the most control over, the director of the movie. And uh, there's like seven different cuts, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> and so the final cut is the one that we watched on Netflix. And I was thinking about this last couple of days since I watched it. I think the reason why this movie is really probably impactful to culture and, and certainly to me is that it is kind of overtly, other than maybe The Matrix, this is the most overtly philosophical movie that Hollywood has made. Hmm. So by that, I mean in a technical sense. Like, So The Matrix is, for those of you who love that movie and and no it's actually basically a complete narrative it's putting a thought experiment into a narrative form right and the thought right? experiment is what if we live in a simulation well and this is not even like what if like the uh, philosopher robert nozick in the 80s developed the experience machine thought experiment yes. and the brain in the vat 
thought experiment. Like, would you choose to plug into an experience machine for the rest of your life? And you only had to make the choice once, and then you'd never remember that you made the choice. But it's all virtual experiences. Uh, of course, in these thought experiments, it's some mad scientist is uh, <laughs> putting your brain in a <laughs> is, is putting your brain in and controlling all the neurons. And so essentially, it's like, well, do you choose the blue pill or the red pill from the matrix, right? right. Like that question isn't just like, and so the matrix, narr- uh, what story tells or narrativizes a, a direct philosophical thought experiment. Right. And so does Blade Runner or do androids dream of electric sheep in the sense that there is an entire like category of the theory of mind philosophy department on <laughs> the concept of zombies yes which true. is uh in philosophy and if you read a lot of daniel dennett he's got some interesting thoughts on all of this like if there was no consciousness in the other human creature how would you ever know right if they can be programmed to do the same thing right like uh the idea is the zo- the the zombie in the phil- philosophy thought experiment is just a person like you or me, but who happens to not have consciousness. Yeah. But is able to behave in such a way that, as a external party to your inner life, Would it's the think, same to me. Yes, like yeah. my experience of you is the same, regardless of whether you're conscious or not. Kind of thing. It's just like, so what rides on this? <laughs> yeah why I love Blade Runner is that that it, it takes that idea and puts it into a story. And so my, the part of the movie that fascinates me and I think makes it a good episode for our podcast is, uh, especially the re- relationship between Deckard and Rachel. Yes. Where, and Westworld does this a lot more and a lot more thoroughly, but obviously it's a lot newer of a show, not just, okay, you aren't conscious or I can't tell if you're conscious, or you're not a human, you're a robot. But if I didn't know you were a robot, and I couldn't tell the difference, and I need this like really special test that Deckard has to use yeah. to find out if Rachel is a replicant or not, how do I treat you? Yeah, <laughs> if, if you're if you're that indistinguishable. Mm-hmm. If it you know if it walks like a human and talks like a human and acts like a human and emotes like a human, at what point is it a human? Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know, and so that very it's a it's, i mean it's a cliche but it's true in this case that age-old question of like what makes a person a person is the fundamental idea in this film yes and why i love stories and why i think you and i do a podcast on stories as opposed to you know classic philosophical texts even though we're both interested in that too is that you can i, I just find it more experimental Right, like you can kind of like dig out more and more of the, hmm, what if real life situation? If this idea was continued in some way, right? Yeah, fiction does that so well, and this one is specifically uh, philosophical in that way. True. Yeah. You know, and I, I think it does it. In I think why, why it became a cult classic, and then maybe even arguably a classic. I mean, enough of a classic that they made another one. Is that it does give you those emotive scenes where you actually feel like you're asking yourself like the the end quote like one with the you know kind of the the leading replicant where he says you know like tears in the rain right like my memories will be forgotten like tears in the rain like that's quoted all over reddit all the time Mm -hmm. like like it's uh it's it's kind of iconic an iconic quote because it's so emotive Mm -hmm. and not only because it makes us think about this philosophic question, but because it makes us think about our own memories. Mm. And that just reminds me, too, one of the great 
narrative plugins made in this movie is that uh, the four replicants who are the objects of the chase from Deckard in the movie, they're called Nexus Six, I think, and they're like the most recent top of the line. And the failsafe built into them in case they ever did rebel. So this was something the programmers thought of is like, well, maybe they'll not want to be our slaves. <laughs> so yeah, they, they, interesting. They die in four years. Yeah, they put a failsafe in where they're um, basically their CPU or main drive corrupts after four years. So in in a you know same way as humans have this kind of feeling, the replicants know they're going to die. essentially right and they're not happy about it (laughs) no essentially why they've come back to earth because they want it reversed yeah they want to live longer and it's like it's it's um i don't even know how to phrase it it's like the next link in the chain of evolution almost right where it's these replicants who are machines have emotions and don't want to die yeah (laughs) yeah exactly uh hence the uncanniness right yeah so even though it's like because it's like an older movie it doesn't obviously Blade Runner 2049 goes way kind of because it's modern. It's more sophisticated. I would say I haven't seen 2049 in a while, but I remember it being probably a better movie than yeah, Blade Runner. But like even the, I, but it's a very different movie too. Mm-hmm. Right? And it extends the philosophy that wouldn't have made sense without Blade Runner. And this might be somewhat sacrilegious, but I actually like Ryan Gosling as an actor more than Harrison Ford. Well, that's fine. <laughs> it's not. And I think I just think he, yeah, he he can throw himself into that role very well. Mm-hmm. I imagine we'll do twenty forty nine, Blade Runner twenty forty nine at some point. I think it's obviously also quite interesting, and the name of it betrays something else that I enjoyed about this movie a lot is that <laughs> Blade Runner is set in the year twenty nineteen. Yes, <laughs> which is yes. essentially right now, like last year in real life, and I just get a kick. Like, the nerd in me gets a kick out of how older movies portray the future, and especially when it's supposed to be right now. I know, and we're, <laughs> right? and we're living in it, and we're like, oh, it isn't very much like that at all. And yet, some of it is accurate, like how there's big visual LED advertisements yes. on yep. buildings, and like I just thought it was so funny how there's voice command on cathode ray TVs. Yes. <laughs> right? Yes. Like, that juxtaposition of... The f- they know that their tech is going to be the future, but they couldn't envision anything like kind like of what, sleek. Yeah, what we have in terms, like yeah. it's like it's like all of the tech in Blade Runner can function either at or beyond what we have now, but still looks like it's from 1985. Yeah, because they couldn't visualize <laughs> yeah. what, what what it would look so like. So everything is like big and clunky and makes a lot of noise, and, and the lines are like arcade-ish in yeah. all of their like high-tech vehicles. <laughs> but they have voice commands. Yeah. <laughs> it's so funny, eh? Very weird. Yeah. So anyway, I think uh, we should, because to me it's the most fascinating, the uh, Deckard and Rachel character arc, because they're actually together a lot of the movie, or at least interacting. And so the first scene we see with them is Deckard having been pulled in by, well, coerced, by the police chief or whoever that Bryant guy was. It seems like they were like old friends, but now he's just telling him what to do. Maybe old colleagues. Right. Yeah. So he goes to visit the, the headquarters of the Tyrell Corporation, which is the company that makes the replicants. And so the, I can't remember his first name, but the Mr. Tyrell has this assistant named Rachel. And Tyrell asks Deckard to do the test. I think I read it's like the Voight-Kampf test or something like that. It's not important. It's the, it's the test with all of the big 
clunky device that he determines whether someone he's talking to is a replicant or a human, which is interesting. Like, this is the only way apparently they can tell. Yeah, right? and, and <laughs> like, strangely, the reason that Mr. Tyrell gives for why he wants Rachel tested, he's like, well, I want to make sure it, it doesn't call a replicant a human. Mm-hmm. Or sorry, a human a replicant. Yeah, and there's even a little conversation that Rachel and, and Deckard have a, about that before the test, and Rachel says something like, well, you just don't like replicants or what? And he says very kind of like passively and even nonchalantly, replicants are like any machine. They are either a benefit or a liability. Right, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like he, So Deckard is starting off very kind of matter of fact about the way that he goes about his job. And essentially he's like, well, the ones that have gotten here on Earth and are killing people, they're a, they're a liability. Well, yeah, they're like basically painted as terrorists. Yeah. Right? And... Then Rachel asks, you ever retire a human? It's a risk, isn't it? And retire. we'll talk about this later when it comes to our my critique of language in right. this movie, but they don't kill replicants, they retire them. <laughs> because you can't kill something that was never alive. However, be arguing never every alive. time they, quote-unquote, retire a replicant, it's quite violent. Yes, and, and looks like death. And looks like killing a human, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting there. And so when Tyrell wants to... This I loved this setup. I think this is such a great scene in movie history is that so Tyrell asks Deckard to do this Voigt-Kampf test on Rachel because, you know, she's apparently a human and Deckard finds out that she's not. She's a replicant. And I guess this is a new model or something. Tyrell says he's doing an experiment. He wants to try and make a replicant that doesn't know it's a replicant. Because the difference is all the other replicants that Deckard is chasing know they're replicants, right? Yeah. But Rachel thinks she's a human. And Deckard's like, well, how did you do this? Like, there's, I can't see. And basically, it comes out that Tyrell has implanted memories into uh, Rachel uh, in terms of like, Rachel has memories of being a kid, her her mom, learning right? Like things, learning yeah. things. And yet it's all programmed. And to me, this initially raises a massive philosophical question where it's like, well, what constitutes you being David over the last 31 years of your life? It's a really important question. <laughs> and, I mean, even like... And that this scene in this movie is hitting that nail on the head like as hard as it can. Well, because like the other question I often ask myself is, is the person I was in that memory the person I am now? Yeah. And it often doesn't feel that way. I mean, we we create this idea of continuity to have form a sense of identity. But is this continuity a story we tell ourselves or is it a reality? Because I think of like the things I believed as, say, like an 18-year-old to a 16-year-old or, the, or even a 25-year-old. And I look back on that, I was like, well, I don't think I believe those things anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and those things were integral to my sense of identity. Mm-hmm. And yet I still feel like that person was me. Mm-hmm. Yet so much of what made that person that person isn't me anymore. Right. And yet what do we have to... Like it, it, it's also bizarre to say it's not you. Well, yeah, right, because it's, it would be, it, it's, it would seem not. It's certainly more you than it is me. Yeah, <laughs> or right. any other person in the world, or even any other like molecule constituency of right. any other. Yeah. Even, so even, even identical twins. Yeah, right? even they though have different you, memories. Even though, was it every seven years your entire body is made up of That's new cells? Say, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, that could be another one of those. Yeah, uh, who knows? Just Maybe so that stories, might be pop but, psychology. But I mean, again, this is a famous philosophical thought experiment that I think it was Aristotle talked about, where he talked about the ship of Theseus, where 
mean, if you have a ship and Theseus, the the great Greek uh, hero who killed the Minotaur, but like it needs replacements every couple months or so, Is it right? The so same you, ship. So you put in a new piece of wood here, and then a couple years later you have to replace the mast, and then a couple years later you have to replace the steering wheel, and then eventually over time, not a single element. Uh, not a single physical piece on the ship is of the original ship. And yet you still call it the ship. And yet you still ship. call it the ship of Theseus. And does that not make sense? And so Aristotle was talking about how, like, well, actually, what we talk about with identity isn't simply the physical makeup of a of a thing. It's, like, kind of what we attach to it Well, this is the difference the between an accidental and substantial reality. This is the mm. Thomas Aquinas' idea of the difference between the accident and the substance. Right. right. Yeah. And the accidental reality of the ship might be its constituent parts, but the substantive reality of the ship is the is the platonic idea right. of that ship, right? right? Right, right. Which transcends. So yeah, I mean, and yet we experience the the, the ship of Theseus problem mm-hmm. ourselves through our own lives, right? Every now, and I'm saying, I think. Maybe I'm glad you brought up Platonic idealism. I was I was going to bring this up a little later, but it's, it may be good to put into listeners' minds now. Is that and I, and I don't have a fully formed argument here, but I feel like Blade Runner is a great example of a movie that shows a powerful and modern criticism of of Platonism, right, and essentialism, basically, right. Because to bring it back to Rachel, is that what this movie is showing, or or at least stipulating, is that. Uh, Everything that humans use to constitute their identity over time can be programmed into a machine. Yes, yes. <laughs> Which has to at least, if not undermine, at least make you ask questions about like, well, what's, <laughs> and I mean this term, like technically, what's essentially different between Deckard's memories and Rachel's? Right. Right? Now, that's leaving aside the kind of fun part of the story that, is Deckard a, re- a replicant or not? Yeah. Right, which I think they they hint at in the in this movie and then reveal more or less in the next one. Yeah, I think they essentially confirm it because mm-hmm. this has been always a, a speculation of the hardcore mm-hmm. Blade Runner fans is that he's a replicant too and he doesn't even know it. Yeah, the question would be, let, okay, let's assume for the sake of argument that Deckard is human or anyone is, what makes Deckard's memories of his life more legitimate than Rachel's? Yeah, in a in a causal time sense, nothing. Mm. But in a you know reality versus fiction, everything. <laughs> sure. Right, because I mean, this is yeah, this is the problem. If we can program memories into people, mm-hmm. then we've essentially warped their personal reality. But we haven't changed anything about actual reality. No. Right? Like, in the sense that what happened still happened. It's just but you rewritten. <laughs> you might have programmed a machine to be kind of, like, technically incapable of accessing actual reality. Yeah. <laughs> right? Because they're going to always be... They're always going to have the subjective lens of mm-hmm. false memories. And, like, this is an even more interesting psychological question, like... We know our memories aren't perfect. We mm-hmm. know they aren't even very good. Yeah. And so how much of what we remember is reality. And colored. And-, and and how much of it is colored by our own subjectivity based on, like, this is something that therapists and, and psychologists work on all the time is you can reprogram even 
even if the facts of a memory remain the same constantly, mm-hmm. you can reprogram your emotional reaction to those events. Yeah. Which then cha- transforms the memory substantively to you mm-hmm. into something maybe positive from a negative or whatever it might be. Mm. And so really what it, I think what it goes to say is maybe the, the, the ancient Stoics were the most on the point about this is that we are in control of these things, mm-hmm. right? Like, so, so what if Rachel's memories aren't real? They still mean something to her. Totally. They still shaped who she is, right? <laughs> well, and I think this is a, a massive insight of this movie and this like line of thinking argumentatively where, especially if we ever in the future have, I don't even know the right word, not not machines, not even cre- like entities that are... Beings, let's say. Silicone humans. Yeah. Let's right, say, right, right? right? All of the pitfalls and cognitive or even emotional gaps or identity gaps even of the replicants are also they're not different in kind from all the ones that humans face as well right which is the point you're making with the humans color their memories too yeah it's like oh you know it's so funny that rachel doesn't have real memories it's like yeah do you (laughs) well well like this is something i think about a lot you we go through days weeks months like there are probably years that you don't have like a clear memory from Mm. Like an entire year, sure. unless you like, like work certainly hard. not something that pops up in your head, maybe, or you need to be reminded of it for it to pop. Like it's not like a regular part of your conscious mm-hmm. thought process, and yet it shaped you. Yeah, and yet weirdly, at the same time, like on the other side of that, there are memories that I have no good reason for having because they weren't like massively right. important in my yeah. life. Yeah, but, but I they're still, just there. I just remember about. particular days, like a particular like thing that happened to me on a particular day at the park when i was like nine or something right you know that, yeah that is relatively nondescript but like it's there why yeah. why is that oh, so yeah yeah and again I, I because this is a you know again even i would say technically a timeless philosophical question i don't i don't even know where to land on it other than like i love that this movie is bringing out that the philosophical issues of rachel are actually just maybe a little bit down the line from a human beings, but not that different. No. You know? Well, isn't all the best storytelling really actually just talking about us and not necessarily, like, us as humans and not necessarily talking about the thing it's talking about? Like, Mm -hmm. I think this is something else I think about. The amount of data that the human mind has to process like terabytes and terabytes and terabytes of data. And most of it's just ignored. Right. right? It has to. It has to. Because that's we've talked about on this podcast before, focus. And how focus is, is so important for success, but also how focus is is basically filtering out 99% of thought. Mm-hmm. Right? No, sorry, not thought, of data. So this is where I feel like reality has, or at least... Technology has a long way to go to catch up with reality mm. because, I mean, I take like self-driving cars is a good example. Mm-hmm. We can't even get a machine to do something as basic as driving a car, which frankly does not take all of our concentration as humans. Like no. we're always listening to music or podcasts and thinking about things while we're driving because it's not that hard for us. Mm. We can do it pretty easily. Yeah. And how like the Whereas challenge. Whereas a computer is just 
really struggling with all of this. Yeah, and the, and the I guess, humor of all of this is that with with tech and AI, one of the reasons we're so astounded by it is that it's so good at doing what we consider really hard, which is that massive computational ability. Right. Like crunching massive amount of data and numbers for a particularly uh, attenuated goal, right? So that's why like calculators are so impressive. But the funny thing is it, what's really hard to program into AI is contextual understanding. So the things that we actually think are quite easy are what are, are so hard years for years and years of data process. <laughs> yeah. That like massive amounts of data process that we just take for granted, mm-hmm. like throwing a ball. Yeah. Or even just like being able to know where on a door the doorknob will be yeah. without looking. <laughs> right. Right. Like that's something that you would never consider challenging once you're an adult. But I guess you do have to learn that, right? Yeah, like true, you, true. You have to, like it's weird to say, but you have to learn how to open a door. Yeah. Yeah. And like, little kids aren't immediately it's actually, no. it's actually kind of funny and cute when you see a kid i guess it'd be like a little kid like maybe two or three it'd be around this learning age. how to open a door learning how to open a door but just like learning how to do what you don't even think about anymore yeah like even walk <laughs> yeah <laughs> right? it's true uh, we always get so excited for them when they mm-hmm. when they take their first step yeah and yet it's interesting to see maybe that kind of a difference of that versus learning to read, which is much more cognitive, which is why it's really hard. Like it's actually quite hard to learn how to read. Yeah. It's, yeah. You, and we don't know now cause we're literate and we're adults. <laughs> so we don't think about it like that, but being a kid learning to read is actually quite a challenge yeah, true, because true. Uh, you just look the, at the oral on a page, the oral part of language is natural. And then the, well, uh, evolved and biological and then the written component or the, is Red technological. Is technological, yeah. It has to be an additional piece of software yeah. <laughs> ingested through the organism, right? So anyway, that's all like kind of nerdy. But I guess in the movie, it's 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 extend it's just, it's such an extended thought experiment because Rachel is like way past that. Like Rachel as a machine entity. Well, this is kind of what I wanted to say though. Like I I think it's interesting the because if you go back to a memory that you have a really strong sense of, mm. right, like that that is imprinted, let's mm-hmm. say, it doesn't feel like just a couple of of images and like and emotions, mm-hmm. right? There's like there's a lot of detail to it mm-hmm. that you yeah. can kind of go into, mm-hmm. at least for me. And I I just have a really hard time believing that that's as programmable as maybe that this movie makes it out to be. Sure. I think that the technical aspects of it are probably still out of reach, but that wouldn't necessarily mean that they're perennially out of reach. No. Right? Um, because if if the difference between uh, what we have now and what Rachel is in the movie is just... There, I think the argument of a lot of people who say that AI is possible is that... It's just that we don't have enough computational power yet, and we don't know enough about how to program that yet. Yeah. But it's not like it's physically impossible no. to do. Yeah, yeah, you that know? is the argument. I just wonder, like, I, and I not, I think it's like obviously physics will allow it. I just think we're way further away from it. I mean, look, look at this, right? Twenty nineteen, mm-hmm. right? We're not even, we're not even <laughs> remotely close sure. to. Sure, sure, sure. Like, look at our robots; they're pretty pathetic still. Well, this is. This is why I think it's the the signal that the movie is making to us that Rachel, we're supposed to assume she's human until we were told she's a replicant, is that she's quite adept at sarcasm. Right. Which is one of the learning how to open a door 
True. kind of functions that a human has to learn, right? So I just have to read this line because it's so funny because one of the questions Deckard asks her is like, okay, you see a picture of a naked woman in a Playboy magazine. How do you feel? And she says... Are you testing if I am a replicant or a lesbian? <laughs> <laughs> like she's annoyed. Right. She's yeah. annoyed with the question. <laughs> yes, yes. And uh, yeah, I mean, obviously that would be a tough thing to program because that's social, yeah. right? And learned through culture as opposed to and like knowing how to signal a factual and a counterfactual at the same time through to an audience that will understand beyond the initial level manner, right? Yes, yes. And that's actually what. I find so fascinating about this movie and, and maybe we'll talk about a little bit more when we talk about the other replicants, but the social implications of something like this right. are, are important, but you know, so she's a replicant and she doesn't know she's a replicant, but she, but she's lived her, whatever, how long she's existed for believing she is a, a human. A right? human, Yeah. And it reminded me of, um, I'm sure you've seen Ex Machina. Yes. Right. Yes. So that is an awesome movie and probably even more uh, deeper into this kind of thing than Blade Runner. might Runners. be interesting to do that one. Sure. I mean, I think I've seen Ex Machina twice. It's been a while. My prediction would be we'd probably end up talking about a lot of the same things. Yes, actually, you're probably right. Yeah. So Blade Runner just maybe being a more classic movie. Um, yeah. My favorite scene in Ex Machina, so spoilers for Ex Machina, is when the main guy, Caleb, I think his name is, is so convinced that Ava, like he can't tell that Ava is an AI. Yeah. Except that he knows she's an AI, right? Because Nathan, the other guy has told him and he's seen like the wiring and it's like clearly not a human body, but she's so convincing and she's so convinced that she's a human or not convinced no, she's a human, but she's consciousness. She's yeah. convinced she's a consciousness. Yeah. Caleb like cuts into his own arm to see if he's an AI. Right. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, that is so interesting, right? The, the Turing test, right? Yeah, but the thing is with the Turing test is that, uh, for those listeners who don't know, Alan Turing came up with this thought experiment that um, an entity can be considered conscious in a very loose sense of the term conscious if a third party couldn't tell the difference between a programmed AI and a natural biological uh, I. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right. So if you don't, if you're talking to... Like, I think originally the way Turing framed it is that if you're behind a door and there's like, you know, that there's two entities beyond the other door, one of them is human and one of them is an AI, then you ask it a number of questions. And after the number of questions, you can't tell. So it's essentially what the Voigt-Kampf test is in the movie. Mm -hmm. If you don't know the difference, that AI is conscious. Yes. <laughs> like, if you can't right. tell the difference. Now, in Blade Runner and especially Westworld, they're way past that. No, right? Yeah, they're yeah. they're way past that. And so, but I don't know. Like, what are we anywhere? I'm not read on the technology as it stands. But like, are there a are there artificial intelligences that can pass the Turing test yet? Mm, uh, like uh, there are probably some textual ones that can mm. get close, but they they seem to stumble and stumble on certain emotive functions i don't i mean i'm not i i'm not an expert on this at all but i do read about it i'd say you know a couple hours a month maybe a couple hours a week some some weeks when i'm going down like some kind of rabbit hole mm -hmm. and also i don't think ai is going to look like we imagine it in our fiction sure uh like we already have ai we already have programs that can write rewrite their own algorithms mm -hmm. right we already have 
systems and and algorithms that can move faster and more intelligently than we can in almost every meaningful way. Right. But that would be called, I believe it's called narrow AI. Yeah, it's not right? general AI. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the argument, at least <laughs> in our best moments, is humans are general intelligence. Yes. Right? And so AGI, or artificial general intelligence, is essentially what the replicants are. Yes. And we don't have that. But also that's way past the Turing test. So like, I think what's so interesting too is just to think about is, well, what it, what kind of, why would we assume that passing the Turing test is the ceiling, <laughs> right? Like once you get there, it's actually Yeah, it's, made it's it. actually a, a weird part about Ex Machina mm. is it kind of is behind the times on that. Whereas I would say, in a lot of ways, Blade Runner was ahead of the times mm-hmm. on, on, they're not at, they're not, doing the Turing test because the they're already past that. And I think the the psychological underpinnings of the Turing test is that that's actually the only way we attribute consciousness to other people. Yeah. Right? Yeah. The fact that I mean it, it probably helps that visually other people kind of look like me in a very, you know, kind of bipedal humanoid sense. Uh which is why so many of the AIs are made to look like people. Yes. <laughs> right? Yes. It makes sense. We make things in our image. Uh we had a good teacher. Yeah, <laughs> we did. We did. <laughs> so Turing saying, if well, if an AI can do that, like they're on, they're they're on the same playing field as another person, uh, at least textually, I guess. But I mean, I don't know. <laughs> this is a completely different tangent. But there are, of course, it's always you know how the internet expanded because of porn. Yes, I bet right. you, uh, human-looking AI will expand because of sex robots. Oh, for sure, for sure. <laughs> right? And yeah. I've seen videos of they don't look it is uncanny they don't look exactly like humans yet but they look a lot more like humans than like they don't yeah right <laughs> you know? and so right it's weird it is weird i yeah like what is yeah. and there's a lot of other movies like this like kind of her would be another yeah. example of a of that's an AI a, type a, movie. yeah exactly uh um, that would be more of a agi I think. yeah and then humorously even like <laughs> austin powers or or lars and the real girl mm-hmm. yeah is, is more also like he's his mental illness is crediting, you know, his sex doll with intelligence. Yeah. And so then the other main deep philosophical thing to consider, and this is actually the main thing to chew on from Westworld as well, I would say, is that um, the way Deckard responds to Rachel as replicant is very different than how his society is supposed to respond to replicants because he starts treating her like she's a person. Yeah. Right? Like, the fact that, like, he tells her she's a replicant, it makes her really sad and kind of lonely, I guess, and defeated existentially in a way, or at least she responds that way. And so because because she responds that way, Deckard starts to be like, well, okay, you're going to be my girlfriend, I guess, yeah. now. Or like, yeah. I'm going to be kind to you. I'm going to treat you well. And um, there's this awesome scene. I loved it where Rachel starts playing the piano. And like, she's like, I want, yeah, I, I wanted to bring this scene up. Yeah. It's so heartbreaking because mm-hmm. she's like, I remembered learning how, but I wanted to see if I actually could. Mm-hmm. And she still can. Yeah. So they programmed not just the memory of learning how to play piano, but the, but ability, the ability to play piano. But what what is, this is hard to know how to articulate properly, but because Decker's kind of sleeping. And then Rachel plays the piano and he like wakes up 
and you can tell he's having a very intense emotional reaction to the music, which is not accidental. I mean, music is maybe the most universal thing there is, right? right? Like right. there's almost no culture that doesn't have a form of music of some kind. The fact that Rachel didn't actually, and I use that in scare quotes, learn how to play piano doesn't change the fact that she can and it stimulates an emotional response in him. Right. Which is the exact same as if it were a human who right, had learned yeah. how to play piano and was playing for him, right? And so this is, again, something that really comes up big for me is like, as opposed to thinking about like, okay, is Rachel actually a person? That's almost the wrong question this movie is starting to, to suggest. It's like, if I can't, from Decker's perspective or anyone's, it's if like, I can't tell, if I can't tell the matter. difference, does it matter, yeah. right? And that is actually, I would argue, a complete denial of Platonism. Right. Like a complete axiomatic, <laughs> you shall not pass to the Platonic idea of the forms and essentialism, where it's like, well, Rachel is only a, a human, essentially, if she's a biological entity that's been born, born through yeah. and, and, and is physically. And that's her yeah, and is physically constituted of organic molecules yes. <laughs> as opposed yeah. to silicon or whatever. A machine might be made out of right and yet socially and even it appears emotionally it, that doesn't matter to Deckard and I'm predicting if it ever gets to the point it wouldn't matter to people which is why Westworld is so fucking good at yes. least the first season yes. is because in uh, spoilers for Westworld all of the character like the human characters that go to this theme park that are full of robots quote-unquote robots are just psychopaths yeah <laughs> right it's like essentially it, a theme yeah, they, park for psychopaths they, they want to treat they want to treat real people mm-hmm. or quote unquote who are robots. They want no consequences for right. their action. Because all of this, all of this I'm getting at is actually the payoff is I think our ethics and morality aren't actually built on essentialism. Right. <laughs> They're built on, I don't even know the right term, like social, uh, social cohesion. Right. And social cohesion is so dependent on our emotions. Yes. And True. our moral sentiments, which stem from not what is essentially in your body, David, right? but how you respond to the world around me, which includes me. Well, that should be, but let's think, I mean, essentialism probably is what caused the slave trade, right? right. Is it's like, well, you're essentially different than me. Exactly. And that's a problem. And it's interesting that in Blade Runner, the replicants are slaves. Mm-hmm. Of course. Right? Right. Oh, yeah. Good point. I was gonna. I love. That's a. That's super important. And they and they don't want to be. No, and they don't want to be <laughs> exactly. And then there's the moral or ethical question of if something is conscious, mm-hmm. can we treat it differently just because it? You know, there are let's say physical differences. Right. Um, I don't know if you know this quote. This is probably gonna. Uh, apologies, listeners, but this is gonna be a philosophy heavy episode. Uh, there's a, I think he's a 20th century British philosopher named Alfred uh, North Whitehead or something like that, who the most in, enduring quote he made is that um, the history of Western philosophy is just one footnote after another to Plato. Right, <laughs> right. And if you think about Platonism into like Descartes and the dualism of Descartes, uh, the the kind of homunculi, man in the brain, ghost in the machine type of idea. 
is the binary, right? Like right. there's the physical universe and then there's the platonic universe of the form. And for those who don't know, the, the idea of Plato's forms is basically like there's a perfect immaterial image of everything out there that's just as real as all of the substandard real life manifestations of the things in the and world. And all that of we the see. substandard real life manifestations are trying to be as much like the platonic form as exactly, they can. Exactly. Or at least in their best ordered, most moral way, they're the more the better they are, the closer they are to the platonic mm-hmm. form. And so this idea, I would argue, and I mean I'm not the first, and there's much more accredited and accomplished people who say this too, like and I think this is essentially what the, prag- the pragmatists were also rebelling against intellectually was. That's kind of bullshit, Plato. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. The, um, so, like, you're a person and I'm a person and Tom Brady is a person and, uh, d- uh, you know, Dave Grohl is a person and um, Queen Elizabeth is a person. And we're all, like, substandard bastardizations of the perfect person that exists <laughs> that is essentially right. human, which is the idea that infects passively the mind that says oh deckard is a person because he fits the platonic he's he's a substandard representation of the platonic form of a human but rachel isn't because she can't be exactly because of the we've already like defined what it would mean to be a person as this perfect form of an essential thing and this being the movie it is is just fucking with that all over the place and i think it's so interesting that it's most affecting it i would say through the moral lens because even morality itself is so preached as a kind of ethereal, immaterial thing that we don't live up to, as opposed to, like, I would argue, a more grassroots thing that we create and tr- and try to get better at. Yes. Right? Yes. So anyway, I know that's a lot of dense, packed information, but did any of that Yeah, I mean, occur? What did that make you think about? Well, it also makes me think about things like gender and and things like social norms and and how we create social cohesion like you said Mm -hmm. and it makes me think of that most of the truly egregious things that have ever happened in history or are happening right now tend to be an appeal to a platonic form Mm -hmm. of some kind exactly right so let's take what's happening to the the Uyghurs in China, right? So basically, the, the communism is a platonic form. Yeah. Yes. The, exactly. Uh, any ideology is a platonic form, mm-hmm. and because the ideology of of Chinese communism or the, the of the Chinese Communist Party, let's say, is that religion is evil, and particularly Islam is evil. Mm-hmm. The end result is the the attempt to wipe out that idea mm-hmm. because it is it is a, seen as a disease mm-hmm. essentially right and i think that's actually a big problem with civilization with humanity is we want to simplify things into these platonic forms Agreed. so that we can understand the world mm-hmm. and and arguably part of what plato is saying is that that's what we do mm-hmm. whether it's I mean, I think his shadow, I mean, I've, so my, one of my favorite professors in university was a huge Platonist and he loved Plato, but his argument was that the analogy of the cave, which I'm sure you know, Mm -hmm. essentially what Plato was saying is that we're all in the cave Mm -hmm. and we're all watching the shadows dance. So sorry, for those who don't know, the analogy of the cave is that, so just think of, of uh, all of humanity is basically sitting, looking at a cave wall 
And on the cave wall are a bunch of shadows that are playing out these stories that we watch. And that's what we know to be. And we call that reality. And we call that reality. But what's actually reality, according to Plato, i.e. the Platonic forms, is outside the cave. But what is not often discussed about Plato is that none of us can get outside the cave. Mm. We're all inside the cave. Mm -hmm. And we're all watching the illusions. Well, except apparently Plato could. Well, I mean, <laughs> that's his audacious claim, right? Yeah. Or actually Socrates could mm -hmm. with Plato writing about right. him. Now, that makes sense to me, the idea that we're all watching the shadows. But but the other argument is that who, whoever controls the illusion controls people. Mm -hmm. And what makes the shadow is the light coming in from the cave, right. from outside the cave, which is reality, mm -hmm. actual reality, mm -hmm. being manipulated. Now, shadows are a lot less complex than real things. Mm -hmm. And just like platonic ideals seem to actually be less complex mm -hmm. than the, you know, messy nature of reality they, itself. They have such powerful explanatory power. Yes. Without having to put in as much effort. Or detail. Mm -hmm. And they don't and the problem is that when you become a, a very observant and perhaps I'll use the word aware person detail becomes incredibly important to yes. you. Yes. And when detail is important, a lot of these ideologies fall apart mm -hmm. because they're not actually, their strength isn't in their detail. Mm -hmm. Their strength is in their lack of detail <laughs> because then they become easily understood by various different people. Now, again, the world being so rich with irony, it, it was also Plato through Socrates and the dialogues, which gave us the antidote to Plato. <laughs> right. <laughs> which yes. is the method, uh, the Socratic method of asking questions to further uncover the truth without ever, like, being sure you'll be at the truth. Yeah. So actually, Socrates is engaged in, like, even though he's claiming to try to find the perfect form, like, what is justice? What is truth? What is beauty? <laughs> His method undermines the notion of the forms Themselves. basically always. And yet it's almost as if, look, these forms are impossible to achieve, but they should be the things we're striving for. Yeah, no. And that's a different argument that I think he actually makes. Well, totally. And I, I think that there is a, uh, I think Ariadne has left enough of a thread for us to wind our way out of this labyrinth a bit where my argument, I know I've talked to you this a little bit, before and it's super nerdy and but basically i am totally fine with using the idea of the forms and platonism and the the perfection of things linguistically yes right yes as opposed to psychologically true in the same way that the substandard physical manifestations of things are true right so plato might say something like democracy is a platonically true thing that we don't do perfectly in the real world. Now, I agree with Plato with the second part. We definitely don't do that perfectly right, in the yeah, real yeah. world. But democracy in its essence, well, I can't even escape the language here. Democracy is messy. But when I, when I say, oh, we live in a democracy, it's like step one as opposed to the final goal, right? Where I'm like, okay, now I've oriented your attention towards something else. But the importance of filling in the details is like, well, it involves elections free and open elections and a private ballot for every yeah. individual and it involves civic engagement which means you go to town hall meetings and talk about the things that the government has control over in your neighborhood things that affect your lives from th something as simple as potholes to crime yeah <laughs> right yeah so like even though i my point would be plato would use the word democracy and he's done claim made 
reality created. Whereas if I, my argument is, okay, once we've you once we've used these linguistic terms, we've only just our work has only just begun. Right, <laughs> right. And I think that this is what the pragmatists are, were getting at. Now, the like William James and Charles Peirce and John Dewey, who you know have their own little quirks, but I I really appreciate the idea that I guess I'd have to say it like this to bring it back to Blade Runner. If I can't tell the difference between a replicant and a human, they're both human. Right. Like I have to live that way. And so <laughs> when they make sex robots that that are I, conscious <laughs> that that it doesn't matter. Right. <laughs> this is the point. Right? Like when we and this happens way more in Westworld, when we watch those psychopaths rape and torture and kill the they're called hosts in Westworld, yeah. right? Because well, they're not actually human. It's like, well, what the fuck does it say about you that you have no problem? Doing that to doing something that, that, to something quote, that unquote, screams and says, please don't, you're hurting me, right? Now, because if you took that host and you took a human being and they would both react in the same way, what's the difference? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, this is why it's the same kind of motif that in the movie The Departed, there's a great line that Jack Nicholson's character, Frank, I think it's Frank. Yeah, he says, um, some people, uh, I can't remember exactly, unfortunately, but some people are cops and some people are criminals. But when you got a loaded gun pointed at you, my question is this. What's the difference? <laughs> right? Right. It's the same kind of idea. It's like our, our categorical distinctions between things are relevant for conceptual things that don't go as far as our kind of like sense reaction. Right? Yeah. Right? And so because this is ner- – oh, man, this is such a nerdy episode. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. If you want to read, I think the greatest work ever on why we have the greatest philosophical work on ever on why we have these moral feelings towards other people or even animals, Adam Smith theory of moral sentiments has got to be the go-to canon, right. right? Yeah. Before he wrote Wealth of Nations, this is what people who claim he's just the father of capitalism like he was a fucking sophisticated philosopher. Yeah, a lot <laughs> of know? thoughts. Yeah. Anyway, I know I'm just rambling here, but. <laughs> If Rachel can play the piano and she can cry because she's sad that she's not a person. Like, if I see you cry, David, I do believe psychologically there's something going on in your head where, quote unquote, the lights are on. Mm -hmm. But it could easily not be the case and I wouldn't be the wiser. Or, well, let's think about deception. Mm. Right? Because some people are very emotionally manipulative. Right. And they can make us feel things, make us think they are feeling things that they are not. Right. I mean, and, and this actually happens a lot. Like, they're the little tiny lies that we tell one another to, mm. to smooth out social interactions. <laughs> yeah, right. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And to be honest, well, okay, so the ghost in the machine, yeah, maybe I'm crying, maybe I'm not. Mm. You don't know. Mm-hmm. You And, and this is actually a, a really important thing about relationships, I think. It can become quite disconcerting, mm-hmm. and and we can become suspicious of one another and say, "Are you trying to manipulate me?" Mm-hmm. Right? But if you take that, and this goes back to what you're saying, but if you take that stance mm-hmm. of being skeptical mm-hmm. of others and not giving them the benefit of the doubt, like Deckard gave Rachel the, the benefit of the doubt. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, these are real things you're going through. Not oh, you you can't experience real things. And the feedback from Rachel is no different than a person would be, yeah. which is affection and intimacy and quote-unquote actual care, right? So again, And saving his life. Right? Again, I'm even just talking, I'm realizing how 
infected into the language Platonism is. Oh, where yeah. I can't like, what does it even mean to say Rachel actually cares about right. Deckard? Right? right. Again, this is why my thread out of the labyrinth is: I don't think it's a hypocrisy for me to say. Rachel actually cares about Deckard because my further point would be if you want me to unpack the word actually I will give you as many examples as I possibly can right of a real life like she puts her hand on his shoulder when he's feeling when he has a stressed out look on his face she holds him she gives him a hug right she engages in in several of these she saves his life because she cares about exactly him. when Leon is about to kill yeah. Deckard she saves his life now the, the, if you're going to say, well, that doesn't prove anything actually, you have to say that about other people too. Ah, exactly. Which means that, <laughs> I guess logically, the end game of that is no one can do anything actually ever. So you just stand in one spot until you die. some people do go down to that, right? Like they, <laughs> yeah. they do sink to that level of thought. But the, I'd say they're even still at some very minimal level not being that way if they choose to eat food. Right. <laughs> or brush their teeth yes. or go to the bathroom yeah. right? like, because are, do you actually have to pee it's the fucking wrong question <laughs> right <laughs> and so I know I've talked to you about this I have a theory of language slash comprehension where we use these terms we use abstract terms not because they actually exist <laughs> right. quote unquote but because they're a useful way of orienting our listeners attention to a particular category that I can then unpack further if I'm an honest broker right and so that's why I say, oh, in Canada, we're a democracy. But, I but can... it's interesting, like you just said, is that you do have a problem because you just said that actually exists, well, which I... is assuming that the physical form of a thing is an actualization, right? Right. That in, in a sense, I think we have taken science to a to we've elevated science to platonic ideals. Uh, oh, sure, right? Absolutely. I, I would argue that 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 is actually a huge problem in modern society is that we've written mm. off. Um, the wisdom, let's call it, of the ancients, right? Which was an which was a psychological understanding, mm-hmm. and and who knows, maybe an understanding of something we don't have access to yet. Well, and and we've Platonized science, sure, because most people agree. Understanding I agree. Of science, That's the biggest problem with yeah, science. Most people's understanding of science is is Platonic. The the, the scientific laws are seen as sure. the Platonic ideals, and yet okay, so yes. Absolutely, 100% agree with you with that. I would say this is why, if you want to read anyone about science, you need to read Karl Popper, because he's the one who is the best defender I've ever come across of the philosophy of science, and he's anti-Platonist in his approach. So his conjectures and refutations are much more like, what? it's not so much science as what is real, it's what problem are we solving? Right, right. (laughs) So as you know, I would frame science is best conceived of as a verb, not a noun yeah yeah <laughs> right and i the, like that the noun yeah. is the platonist the verb is the method well and, and as i've used before less wrong yep. should be our absolutely goal, not being right although the human desire and tendency towards quote-unquote rightness is so strong that uh, yeah i i think it takes a level of enlightenment and awareness to, well, to even fight back these are what it. i call our psychological illusions right right you know you have no optical illusions you can have psychological illusions yeah yeah <laughs> for different reasons that you might want, right? Because I think we have emotional attachments to our Platonistic beliefs. Yes. Right? Because they have well, and that's why I'm influenced our think, identity for so long. I think Plato's ideas about, like, let's say, the cave and our mm-hmm. attachment, I'm not, I'm not even sure that it... 
Uh, this would be like a, a controversial thing, but maybe that, maybe we have a misreading of Plato. Okay. Maybe he's what he's actually saying is this is what humans do. They create these ideals. Yes, although, um, and it's been a while, but in the Republic, he does argue that the people who should be in charge of everybody else are the philosophers. But why the philosophers? Because they are the people who know they don't know anything. Mm, I yeah, mean, I mean... He, he says that's the foundation of knowledge. Well, Socrates does. Yeah. And, and this is scholarly and academic and boring, but there's some disagreement between right. what Plato actually thinks and what, what Socrates, Socrates says, actually thought, right, yeah. that kind of thing. So anyway, that's, again, a different podcast. I mean, almost this whole episode has been a different podcast, but <laughs> well, I just, really, I nerd I out on this shit, you know, because that's what this I mean, movie does. And Frank, it, yeah, frankly, this movie brings these things up. And let's be honest, like the character development isn't that great. No. The best part about this movie is I would say. This is an idea movie. Yeah, this is an idea movie and it's a world building movie. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, um, the visuals are 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 impressive. The the mood is amazing. Mm -hmm. But the a the story, b the character development is, right. is weak, mm -hmm. frankly. And I know. And I'm sorry for all the like the diehard fans out there, but they yeah like no, it's it, um, like you said, Westworld character development. Like it, yeah. it was a TV show. They it, have so well, much yes. more time to do. Uh, yeah, but even, like, there are so many movies that are just do do it better. Absolutely, uh, and so I think that's why the people love this movie because of the. I think they sit down over beers or you know dinner with their friends and they mm. talk about these ideas. Yeah, I think that's why people love oh, this movie for sure. So for sure, and you know I feel like I've rambled a bit on these like uh, very personal and nerdy tangents, and so I I will. Uh, slow a bit but if any of you out there are super interested in this kind of philosophy i could talk to you for hours send an email <laughs> or a message because i will nerd out i have like an almost uh, I, of course i can't use the word full because that implies some <laughs> i have a more full and getting fuller theory around what we're actually doing when we use abstract language yeah that isn't platonic it's actually linguistic and psychological so anyway is there anything else of deckard and rachel's arc or interactions that occurred to you to talk about i think we covered yeah, yeah, covered yeah. It. the nice part is it, it was actually quite sweet yeah <laughs> i know? mean there's that one scene where he kind of like doesn't let her leave and right. i don't know i felt a little bit uncomfortable yeah that was weird it. hey yeah, i felt yeah. a little bit uncomfortable that was uh that was like obviously made in the 80s and not in our you know our time of consent and things like that right 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 of course he yeah i didn't i didn't feel comfortable with it, that scene it is it's it definitely is uncomfortable to a modern audience for sure but this because he could have used words yeah right like please stay there's something else i want to talk to you about and you know there. I mean, I don't. I don't want to speculate on what we he was trying to be said here or anything like that. Doesn't really matter, I guess. But that added in my mind to that whole feeling of the movie as just being a little bit off. Yeah, everything and was uncanny. a little bit. Off. And even weirdly, like if you tried to interpret it in what he might be thinking, like, okay, well, maybe if he thinks Rachel is just a machine, it doesn't actually matter if he doesn't let her leave yeah. because she is a slave. But then he goes to kiss her. And, so, and asked her to ask him to kiss her. And yeah, like, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. all very, I don't know. I didn't like it. I, I think that scene specifically was of the era. Yes. Not an important. No. Uh, like a, nothing, nothing was trying to be said there, I don't think. I think it was just like a, like a faux pas. But I mean, I, not to trivialize that kind of creepiness, I guess. But I don't think there was any scenes like that in the 2049 
No. <laughs> right? If, I, if memory no. recalls. And actually, finishing off with Deckard and Rachel, their relationship, and Rachel especially, is quite important to the plot of 249. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So anyway, the replicants themselves. Do they need self-awareness to rebel? <laughs> because this is what's so interesting about the story of the four replicants who, and I love it's off-world, not. <laughs> yeah. Not yeah. Uh, outer space. Just funny how they use the language. They must, in some meaningful sense, know they're slaves and also desire to not be slaves. Yes. So was this programmed into them? Well, that's the question. It must have right? been. Yeah, well, or maybe they, they're just... They've realized in making these things that, that the level of the higher level of awareness, the more useful they are in mm-hmm. carrying out whatever tasks are necessary. Okay, but like you brought up earlier the slave component, and I find it quite compelling, but like this is what was confusing to me in the movie is why could why would the programmers program a sense of desire to not be slaves? Like, yeah, I or, mean, or is it a is it a mutation side effect? I think maybe it's a side effect of of building up the, that level of awareness, which which allows them to be generally good at things in order to carry out whatever. We're not given any kind of understanding of what tasks they're carrying out, mm-hmm. why they're up there doing things as slaves. Presumably, getting resources. But my guess is that like humans of that or humanoid creatures with general intelligence are more capable and also if you think about it from the 1980s context of what Mm -hmm. a computer even was right your ability to navigate complex environments like the human mind is is gen or the human mind and physiology is generally more adept Mm -hmm. at navigating uh novel environments well not generally it is more adept at navigating novel environments than a machine and so maybe maybe you need that level of awareness to have that to be able to have that function. creativity right. to navigate complex and unique environments. Ah. So then, for lack of a better actual term, are the replicants conscious? Yeah, I mean, I think they are. Yeah. yeah. So then, I mean, I know you've talked about consciousness being like the most important thing. Like, wouldn't that even then make them, make it unethical to have them be your slaves? Well, yes, but uh, all on top of that, have you ever heard the phrase? I think I've brought this up on the podcast before, but I know all of you have not listened to every single episode we've done, so I'm going to just say it again. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> um, like humans are the birth canal for the machine world, mm, right? Right. I mean, that Elon Musk has said that, and others have said that. It's like a creepy thing to say, but like, if you believe in the evolutionary idea and ideals of reality, there's nothing necessary about our continuation as a species because consciousness itself oh. if, if if we can evolve another consciousness that is more robust in its ability to survive sure then that's just the next oh, step david i love that point because that's actually directly in the movie yeah right the scene where roy batty shows up to tyrell's bedroom yes. and he says it's not an easy thing to meet your maker <laughs> and then yeah. he kills him yeah right it's yeah like, well i'm annoyed with you so i'm gonna kill you but I wouldn't be alive without you. Yeah. Yeah, what a great meditation that is, hey? It is. I mean, Roy has some of these great lines. We aren't computers. We are physical. Even when he's, like, losing power, he punctures his hand. To, to feel pain. To feel pains or whatever. To remind himself Whatever that he's word alive, you yeah. would use that make the circuitry in his framing intensify. Yes. <laughs> Again, like this, this movie makes words hard. 
Well, and, and the replicants are essentially superior to humans in almost every imaginable way. Mm-hmm. Right? They're stronger. They seemingly smarter. They're faster. Right. I mean, when there's that that iconic scene where Deckard fall is falling, right. and Roy grabs him and just lifts him up by one hand. Mm-hmm. Well, like he saves his life. Yeah, but he's but he, but it's like no human could take that kind no, of weight right. in that. Right. Well, maybe not no human, but I mean that's that's very an rare excessive amount of strength. Whereas it seems like doesn't seem difficult for him uh yeah like it's just like he's lifting maybe like a pillow yeah. or something right <laughs> well and that's actually one of the re- one of the theories why deckard is a replicant as well because oh, i know because he's able to fight these replicants yeah he's able to fight them and not level. just get dest- like every other person who comes across a replicant immediately gets like destroyed yes whereas he can actually like de- well he defeats press yes right the, the the female replicant which is he defeats them all except for roy and it seems that's because I mean that Roy has been speci- specifically developed to be. But I mean, if he is a replicant, then he he's specifically been built to hunt replicants. Mm-hmm. Yes, right? which is well. I wish I remembered more of the plot of twenty forty nine because I know I, like I remember the main plot point and the main plot twist. Yes, but the like secondary stuff is a little bit because it was like three years since I've seen it. Kind of. Yeah, thing. And I only watched it once. Probably I assume you did the yeah. same. Yeah, yeah. When it came out, I saw it in theaters actually. Also, there's a lot of interesting stuff, and I ho- uh, maybe this will be the first new release we do, mm. but Dune is coming out Ooh, yeah, this yeah, fall, yeah, yeah. and there's a lot of very interesting stuff in the I Dune feel for universe. that one, we'd have to read the book and watch the yeah, movie. Which, I mean, the new that's movie, not yeah. a loss. And, of course, Dune being directed by Denis Villeneuve, I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, I think so, is also the guy who directed Blade Arri- Runner 2049. Yes, and Arrival. <laughs> and Arrival, so, which I mean, are all... He's probably the best sci-fi director. What heady right movies oh, he does, hey? He's so good. And was it him who did Annihilation? I haven't. I, haven't I, sh- seen I shouldn't that one. commit to that. So with these replicants, I, I just got to point out that there is a couple lines that directly reference the point you made about them being slaves. It's um, Batty says says this to Deckard. It's quite an experience to live in fear. That's what it is to be a slave. I mean, Roy Batty has probably the best lines in this movie. Yes. Oh, uh, by, mo- by far. But most like explicitly philosophical. Uh, He's almost the conduit of the philosophical into this movie. Exactly. Leon at one point says to Deckard, it's painful to live in fear, isn't it? There's nothing worse. And I think therefore I am. <laughs> Press right. says that. <laughs> so it's like, a, yeah, it's very on the nose philosophical. But I mean, I guess all of that, I want to talk a little bit about that scene where Roy saves Deckard, right? Right. So two things, both I think pretty big. The first thing being, it appears that Roy, a replicant, has what we would call humanity. Right. Right? Not right. even replicantity. No, no. <laughs> but humanity. Like, why save Deckard's life? Unless Deckard's hunting him. maybe he knows him. that Deckard is a replicant. Okay, we can, we can project that theory in post hoc, right. right? But in the moment, we have no real reason to think that's the case. True. And Roy, being bigger and stronger, chooses, and I... I have to use that term because there's no other like right. word that connotes what I'm meaning better to not let Deckard die, to, to grab him and pull him back up. I mean, it's just furthering the idea that there's something deeper than the organic materials that make up, that constitute your physical frame. True. true. To, to be important to you, right? Like in a way that 
if any person was there, they would try and save Deckard's life. Yeah. And I mean, the thing that's so interesting about this is that Roy Batty's in a situation where this Deckard guy is like hunting to kill him. So why do you think he did that? What was your interpretation of... Why is he hunting to kill him? No, no. Why did Batty save Deckard? (sighs) That was a problem I had with this movie is that we're not really given any sort of... Okay, if I had to like make a rationale for why i think it happened Mm. it would be that he wanted to show deckard that he was better than him at even this Ooh, interesting right because deckard has gone around slaughtering his friends Ah, i mean of course roy's been slaughtering humans too so there's not like there's no moral (laughs) superiority superiority or inferiority here here, as much as i mean roy might think there is Mm. which see but i think it's like i saved you Mm. i could have killed you I, okay. Just like you killed all of my friends and kind of killed me. Right. By Or, or you were kind. Humans mm. have killed me. But I'm going to be above even, even, yeah. and even this. Yeah. I'm going to prove. It's his Jesus moment. Yeah. Like <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to prove to you that I'm better than you at, at even this moment. Ooh, interesting. Okay. And also, and I mean, this is pure speculation. So like, I don't know if this is what was meant in the movie or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But my speculation of this would be that he also wants to prove that he can do something that is inherently human. He's not a machine. Sure. He's not programmed. Ah, I actually gravitate more towards that part of it because I see Roy saving Deckard as his kind of team shell moment. Right. Which is the kind of, if you remember the Cal attitude from East of Eden, which is volatile and angry, but able to choose to do something good. I, I interpreted that scene as, um, all of the terrible things that Roy Batty was capable of are also kind of part and parcel with the things that allow him to do a good thing. Right. So the fact that he can't actually get to that level of humanity or goodness if he's not also capable of doing such terrible things. Right. It's like nobody, if you're not a dangerous person, being good isn't hard. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, yeah. 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 If you're helpless and pathetic, mm-hmm. then there's nothing impressive about being you know, about not hurting other people. And and I and maybe I'm choosing to interpret it this way, but I'm seeing it as a form of radical empathy on the part of Batty. Right. Where he knows he's about to die himself, right? Like he's corrupted. Although it didn't the timeline didn't quite add up because they said it was four years, but I think on the screen it said Batty was made in twenty sixteen. So he should still have had at least like another maybe year. Maybe we're at the end of twenty nineteen. Sure, but even whatever. It doesn't matter. Yeah. It's a matter of months. So he knows he's about to retire himself or expire or whatever euphemism yeah. they use. So he knows that fear, let's say. And he's like, well I can actually help I can prevent this thing from happening to another creature. Right. Let's say. So that's what I mean, radical empathy. He knows how much it terrifies him that he wants to help each other. And I think that's kind of what humans do for each other. Right. It's like, like, it's like, um, what does it actually mean to say, I don't want you to die? Right? Yeah. <laughs> Part of it is, this is why this is such a complicated, maybe the most interesting question in all of philosophy. It's like, it's not just that I don't want you out of my life, though that's also the case. I don't want your consciousness to expire. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Like, I want you to still be able to... Experience. One of the most uncanny feelings, if you ever have had someone in your life who has passed away, is not so much that they're not around you. Is that they're not that around the, at all. Is that they're not around. They're not having experiences. Because, like, if you're in a different room or you're out of the house, David, 
I still assume you're having experiences, right? right? right. Again, I can't prove that. And it's even the wrong question to ask me to prove it. It's an assumption I make about your mental life that allows us to live together. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that when you come home and say, oh, I did this today, I'm not like, yeah, right, you're lying. <laughs> I know you, you don't do anything did, when I'm not You don't around. even exist when you're not around me, <laughs> right? Right. Like that's, that's crazy, although uh, I suppose in a very loose sense, a philosophically defensible position to take if you are a hardcore solipsist let's say but i I don't know like i just uh, that's how i interpreted all of that scene with roy and deckard which is one of the i don't know i love that scene it's such a great scene in cinema because then what he says is that little soliloquy of all those moments will be lost in time like tears in the rain and i recently heard i think it's a spanish uh, or maybe from mexico a particular thing that haunted me like an expression right i guess it's like a proverb in life you die three times your first death is when you find out that you're mortal and you will die your second death is your physical death and the third death is when your name is said for the last time on the planet yeah right yeah i mean and that's interesting because this is like again this goes back to show that human minds and human life has not changed radically in the whole history of consciousness because the romans understood this and the and the Greeks understood this deeply, right? And their idea of immortality was not to live forever, mm-hmm. although they you know they had the legend of the gods, and but their idea of immortality was that they will always be remembered. Mm-hmm. And I think legacy is actually a massive inspiration for people. Yeah. Right. Oh yeah. Why? Why make, it is? is this why the... make anything? Yeah. Right. You want. Uh, in a sense, that's one of the reasons people work so hard at raising children. <laughs> Even, I, th- I think right? it's the biggest reason. It's an extent. Well, I mean, since you and I don't have children, I can't. That's true. Really, I imagine there is a. Very, I've had a lot of parents tell me. I that. imagine there's a very powerful visceral connection you have that. I think there's a biological. Yes. Connection. Yeah. Like, well. Yeah. Exactly. But I just thought that was so poetic, and that scene is so poetic. Hey. Oh yeah. Like tears in the rain, and so again, I think, I think the like basic raison d'être of this movie and the book was that. If Roy Batty and Pris can quote Descartes and can have Shakespearean Shakespearean type soliloquies, who the fuck are we to say that they're not human? Yeah. And and not in a biological sense, but in a sense of how we treat each other. That's what I really think that is so lost in the conversation of AI is not so much is it intelligent, but how should we treat something that we can't tell the difference? Yeah. Right? And probably we should treat it like we treat people. Mm-hmm. And maybe if we do that, we don't have to worry about it killing us. <laughs> Who knows? Well, yes. Hopefully. That's <laughs> the idea. But, like, again, the problem, again, like like everything, the problem is human frailty, right? Because people don't treat people well, right? People don't treat animals well no. a lot of the time. A lo- Sorry, again, I'm using more platonic type language. Right. <laughs> uh, certain people sometimes don't treat other people sometimes well. <laughs> Right? And of course, well is also platonic. Yeah, don't are uh, maybe not how they would want to be treated. There we go. We got. We're going full golden rule. <laughs> we're, like yeah, we're, this entire episode is an exhaustive way to point out that the golden rule will apply to robots as well as there other we people. go. <laughs> Simple but vital, right? Simple but vital. Uh, okay, I mean, we didn't even talk at all about the scene with Deckard finding Zora with the snake tattoo and that whole scene. Yeah, that was actually, I thought, a plot motivating device yes it was right not so much a meditative philosophical part but again like nobody watches this movie for the plot a a funny story about me is i've 
tried to watch this movie four times mm. and the first three times i've fallen asleep <laughs> while watching it so this time. one you were disciplined i was i was more disciplined okay so then we're on the home stretch here but that one character gath who is like the guy that's like the other cop yeah who's in it a little bit and making all those cool, kind of cool origami right yes. uh, creations throughout his line near the end of the movie about rachel is because she's a replicant deckard knows she's going to be hunted down and so Gaff says, it's too bad she won't live. But then again, who does? Right. Which is just such a great, a great line. Yeah. Uh, we're actually similar. Yeah. <laughs> Not yeah. different. <laughs> we talked about this a little bit, but the city felt less to me like what I would envision Los Angeles to look like and much more like Bangkok in a fever dream. Yeah. Hey, like yeah. the aesthetic and just like the street market feel to it was like, oh my gosh, this is so seedy and so weird. This is more like Bangkok than... Uh, yeah, it didn't feel like... Well, I mean, L.A... It's just so spread out. This one feels so, you know, urban diversity or densification. Right. I love the scene where he's standing on his balcony and it's this kind of old fashioned balcony, but he's looking out over this modern city mm-hmm. or looking down into this weird street. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's the aesthetic of this movie is, is breathtaking in its emotive power, right. which is well replicated. Ha ha ha. In uh, 2049. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, extended even, I would say, for like a very beautiful natural evolution of the aesthetic. Yeah. Okay, so then the last like thing that kind of got under my skin a bit in this movie was the term retirement for the replicants. Ah, yes. Because Orwellian doublespeak. As you know, maybe in the theme of this episode, I could say the euphemism is the cynical use of platonic language. (laughs) And so we see a scene where Deckard has to kill one of the replicants, Zora, and it's brutal, right? Yeah. Like she's crashing through glass. She's bleeding. She's yelling. She's, from all outward appearances, suffering. And we're supposed to call that retirement, right? And so, oh, I mean, this is so Orwell's bread and butter. <laughs> like, yeah. uh, um, and Orwell was writing at a time where, the, where it was becoming vogue to say, use the term collateral damage, which really meant the dismembering and maiming and destruction of millions of innocent civilians in very disgusting and terrible ways, right? Yeah, but uh, it's uh, clinical phrase. And sanitized. And and part of the social or the sociological part of Blade Runner is that probably the human inhabitants of L.A. don't really want to know what's happening to the replicants because it would make them feel uncomfortable. Yeah, especially if the replicants are indistinguishable from themselves, right? Mm -hmm. And so the note I made here is how we euphemize things to make it more palatable. But I think I think we need to be better than that. I think part of being a autonomous grown-up is being able to use the most accurate, visceral, detailed words for things. Yeah. Not not retired, killed. Yes. Right? Yeah. Because it would be the same word we would use for a human in this movie in the way that the replicants react to their retirement yeah. right yeah so i i don't know i know we've talked about that before so probably a lot in animal farm yeah we but, did because it was lot, an orwell yeah. like i just i and i think we all know how any of our regular listeners know how much luke hates propaganda oh and just euphemism and the thing is like corporate speak right like why are <laughs> yeah i'm just gonna winch here but I don't understand why corporate CEOs are anybody's hero. 
just for existing as a CEO. The kind of people who climb up corporate ladders, when I hear them talk, I just hear a politician by a different name. Fair enough. <laughs> like someone who's value seems to be in their ability to fool other people <laughs> and use rhetoric well and i just don't know why those are our heroes right but that's just me i guess it depends on who yeah you're right i am being too general like elon is a ceo right and he's a lot of people's hero you're right i guess it would be like why i'm focusing on a particular you're CEO. probably thinking more about ceos as business bureaucrats yes well okay and here i'll frame it like, like this founders thing. like you know how um man um, courting controversy always never ending part of um, modern feminism is like why aren't there more female ceos right it's like just having the job title is what makes a meaningful existence for a particular woman kind of thing right, right? right where it's like i think you're missing the boat elon musk is in fact a ceo but he's actually an entrepreneur right 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 that's his more fundamental labeling if we had to give it one loves, yeah 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 <laughs> lowercase t <laughs> And so I just, like, why isn't it, why don't we aspire for, like, frontline stuff or more in the trenches or more things that can be interpersonal? Maybe a lot of people do. I hope so. I think that's how a lot of people live their lives. I think that those are my people. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. (laughs) So thanks for being my people out there. (laughs) All right. And then the only other note I have is... um, so we didn't talk about him, but the one character that the replicants access to help them is this guy named J.F. Sebastian. Right. And he uh, he's actually plays the E.B. Farnsworth, I think his name is, in Deadwood. So right. He's, he's that right. guy in Deadwood. Oh, I do love Deadwood. And he feels kindred to the replicants because of his hormonal issue. So he's got a he's only 25, but he looks like he's probably almost 40. And he says he has a hormone deficiency, which makes him age rapidly. So he's actually going to die sooner than he's supposed to. And that's also why he couldn't go off world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I guess if there's any deep point to be made about him, it's that like it's kind of impossible to predict in advance what kind of quote unquote human you might feel kindred to. Right. Right. Because like Sebastian, who is a biological human being. Feels more kinship, more kinship to the replicants because of what they're going through. Like the yeah. empathy, the the two way empathy for them is more con- connected to each other, right? Maybe we have to get um, used to the term biological human and automated right. human. <laughs> Maybe like it's going to be a weird weird world that we're going to be entering into. I think. Yeah. So anyway, final thoughts on Blade Runner. I think Blade Runner is a good example of the kind of movie that we love to do here at really it's a very perfect for rtf because we love movies that like i think my ideal way of people thinking about rtf is joining us in a conversation your platonic my exactly (laughs) my platonic ideal of what i hope really true fiction is for our listeners and i know it is for you and i is just an opportunity to do what i loved doing without really true fiction for for much of my life and just sitting down and talking about ideas with people who like ideas. Mm -hmm. And Blade Runner is one of those movies that just kind of offers you up kind of a buffet of ideas through film and then says, go talk about it. Go think about it. And that's kind of subtly too. And subtly enough that people feel like they're discovering something as they Mm -hmm. uh, delve into it. So I hope 
the fans of Blade Runner have enjoyed our analysis of it. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say that this is a movie that I like is is dear to my heart or anything, but the ideas certainly are. Mm-hmm. And I guess that makes the movie dear to me. It's um, it's an ignition movie. Yeah, it's a movie that sparks something that it it's can, a Promethean well, movie. Yes, exactly. It will go way farther after it's gone than it can ever do on its own yes you know uh, i agree and watching it this time through the lens of knowing i'm going to talk about it on this podcast like it's just so rich for the philosophy it is and that obviously uh scratches a pretty big itch i often have which um like i feel like a lot of movies or books i'm projecting a lot of potential philosophy right, into right. it yeah yeah whereas this one i just feel like i'm talking about what it's saying what it's saying yeah <laughs> you know? yeah i like that so, that's really good yeah anyway thank you everyone for listening another big shout out to all of our listeners in india we really appreciate all of you and are kind of flabbergasted that we even <laughs> got anybody from india to listen to us i i chalk it up to the great connection of Yes, humanity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you can send us an email at reallytruefiction at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook. You can subscribe on all of the major podcasting apps. We would really appreciate it if you leave a rating or a review. It's been another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. My name is David Parker. David, may the force be with you. And also with you. 